Welcome to Cyclast by Rubens Brews. I'm Adam Robbings. And I'm Matt Lutton. And today we're on to the second of our three panel discussions. Back in uh, Seattle Beer Week 2019, we hosted three, three panel discussions with the help of Kendall Jones on three different uh, beer topics. So one was on the Art of Lagers, one was on hops, and one was on sour beers. Today we're going to listen to the Art of Hops panel discussion. And on, on here we had, it was led by uh, Kendall Jones from the Washington Beer Blog. And then in terms of the panelists, we had uh, Michael Frankovitz, who is from Fort George, Michael Hunsaker from Grains of Wrath, Patrick Jansen from Matchless, and myself. So before we get on to that, you're going to hear quite a lot of discussion around hop creep. And I just wanted to, to, to frame that before if you're, if you're not aware of what that is. So when we're brewing an IPA um, as a craft brewer, you, I don't know an IPA that hasn't dry hopped anymore. You know, maybe 10 years ago, some of them weren't, but they're all dry hopped now. So what does that mean? Well, you wait for the beer to finish fermenting and you add more hops to it, almost steeping like a tea. That normally takes a few days, and then you can then take the beer off of those hops, and it just gives it a lot more of a, of a hop profile. So hop creep is when fermentation finishes and then restarts slowly creeping along. It usually happens after a beer's been dry hopped, and I don't know any IPA that isn't dry hopped nowadays. So this, this creeping along of fermentation um, sort of elongates the whole fermentation profile. So it creates some diastol into the beer potentially that needs to be reabsorbed by the beer so during the during fermentation also thins out the beer the fermentation continues so that means the yeast is eating the available sugars in the beer uh, for longer than we would expect so um, that's obviously uh, not good if you're going to be thinking that your beer has stopped fermenting and then it carries on fermenting so how does this how does this happen well as brewers we're always trying to make our hoppy beers hoppier, uh, giving them a bigger nose, essentially, uh, more, more hop ar- aromatics. And we've been doing that by increasing the dry hops of beers, so the amount of hops that we add into the beer after fermentation. So it's almost like steeping tea. Then we're also um, dry hopping at, at higher temperatures as well um, to try and get more aroma out of, out of those hops. And hop uh, farmers and processors have, have been kilning hops at lower temperatures. So that means after they've been harvested, drying them out at a lower temperature. The idea there is that we're not, they're not evaporating off the volatile uh, flavor and aroma compounds as much as they would be necessary at a higher temperature. Now, all those three things contribute to add a certain level of enzyme into uh, more of this enzyme into the beer, which is essentially an enzyme that is restarting fermentation. So we're going to talk about that in this in this uh, in, in this panel discussion today. But that gives you a, a more of an overview of of when uh, when hop creep is talked about. That's 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 what we're talking talking about in general. So we're going to talk about that. I just wanted to to frame that because everybody on the panel knows about it, and and I don't think it was really explained to the to the audience. Sam enough as we went through. Also, this is the second of three panel discussions that were all taken at the same time. And uh, maybe there was one or two too many uh, beers um, uh, consumed at that point. So some of the some of the language might get a little, uh, <laughs> little on the wild side. And uh, as selfishly, I'd like to listen to this in the car with my sons uh, driving around, uh, we, we may have um, taken some of that out. So you might hear the odd, the odd uh, blank, uh, blank space. <laughs> uh, if you can even hear a blank space, that doesn't make any sense. But anyway, so onto, onto the art of hops. I want to talk to you about analyzing new hops. With so many new varieties being introduced all the time, because those hop farmers are crazy, and they're trying to feed you guys all these new crazy varieties of hops, trying to keep you happy. What do you do? I assume you don't just jump in with both feet, but rather you do something to analyze or experiment with new hop varieties that you've never worked with before, or that probably very few people have worked with before that you don't have a lot of background information on. So what do you do when you get some new crazy variety of hop from Yakima that you've never worked with? Yeah, so um, when I was a home brewer, it was pretty easy just to test each each bat with a batch with a like a five gallon kind of test, and if it doesn't work, you can just put it down the drain. But uh, when you got at least ten barrels, is a bit of a different uh, different deal. Um, so obviously, when you get a new hop in, you can rub it and uh, see 
and, and get a feel and, and a, just a, a good, good nose on, on what, it, what you think it will be like. And um, when we found out pretty quickly in our six and a half year life that that doesn't work very well. So the beer won't translate. Hold on, hold on. What about making hop tea? It's taking some hop water and putting some hops in. That, that probably doesn't work so well either, does it? So uh, yeah, hop, hop tea, uh, we've, we, we don't do that. So what, what we do, <laughs> um, being a Brit, I should do tea, right? I should do tea. I do drink a lot of tea, and I brought a lot of tea back when the last time we went to the UK. It's, it's, good, it's, it's, it's good stuff, uh, some of the stuff. Um, but uh, no, not with hops. We, we, um, what we found works for us is, well, first of all, smash beers, so single malt, single hop beers, uh, I don't think uh, generally, generally work out too well. So what, what, um, any new hop has to be in a blend. So what we're trying to do is understand the characteristic of that hop and how it will fit into a blend. Could it be the primary hop in a blend or would it be a supporting hop in the blend? That's generally what we're like looking for with new, new, new hops. And how do we do that? Well, we uh, do half-gallon uh, dry-hop trials. So it actually doesn't matter what the base beer is because we dry-hop dry an equipment rate of like two to four pounds per barrel. And we will dry-hop literally in growlers, um, uh, usually using Crikey as a base, something that is, is representative, and uh, come up with essentially pints of 100% dry hopped uh, hop uh, beers. So if we're, if we're playing with a new, so like let's look at bits and bobs. So like Grungeist was something Ex that- Excuse me, let's look at bits and bobs. <laughs> he just uh, said that. Yeah, <laughs> let's, yeah let's, um, yes. Uh, how, do I, how do I get out of that? Bits and bobs IPA. When, when, we, when we're coming up with that every year, so we, we take a hop that we've come across in the last 12 months as, a, as like the primary hop for that blend. So this year was Grungeist. And then we will work out what, what variety of hops do we want to play with. And we just did this last week for a different beer, actually, that we're going to come out with soon. We, we dry hopped individually, like 100%, um, seven, different beer, seven different beers. And we had pints of 100% dry hopped seven different beers. And we were going around, do tasting notes. And oftentimes, we'll do it blind, so you're not biased towards like what you think mosaic should be, or what you think should, citrus should be. And then we will liter literally use a scale and blend back from there. So maybe we want, let's try, in the end, this blend was like 40% of one hop, 40% of another hop, 10 and 10. We tried 40%, 40% and 20 of one, and, it, and the 10 and 10 was so much better. So that gives us, that we do that for everything, for, for crush beers, and, and um, we found that that, is the best way of actually understanding how a hop reacts in, in, in the beer and how it can blend best. So Michael, I have a question for you. Um, I wanna talk about hop selection and hop contracting. Uh, do you participate in hop selection and how important is that? Um, we participate in 90% of our hop selection, things that are in New Zealand, Australia, not so much. Sometimes the idea of Germany sounds great, but it doesn't happen too easily. Um, most of it's American. Where we are, it's amazing because we could go down to Willamette Valley, up to Yakima Valley. It's real simple. Or they could send it to us next day, air, or drive, whatever that would be. Um, but that part is really important to us. Uh, we have 16 people in the brewery, and everybody gets a little sticky pad, picks the ones that they want, and then we discuss the idea of what they got from it because there's about a three-line sentence for each person of what they got out of that hop, and then we just make sure that's what we're looking for. And sometimes we'll split it up because we want two different sections of Citra, depending what beer we're doing. That's interesting. That's kind of where I was going to lead that question to, is what, you know, you got two different lots of Citra or two different lots of mosaic. Um, you know, what is the difference between what, what leads you towards one or the other? Is it basically d dependent on what beer you know you're gonna need that, that citra for? Um, so it's all relative because we're only smelling, rubbing, and we don't actually yeah. know how it's gonna perform.
but it could be very herbaceous or it could be very fruity or it could be floral. It's just kind of what we're looking for in certain aspects, whether it is a hazy, a pale ale, IPA, or even a Pilsner if you want to kind of strike a little bit of stuff into it. So when you're, when you're selecting hops and you're selecting particular lots versus another, are you just looking for, uh, it's kind of like, okay, the NFL draft, tangential here, right? You're looking for the best player or are you looking to fill a, posi a certain position? You're going to spend your draft pick on the one that is just the best overall player, regardless of whether it fits into one of your beers, or are you, are you looking for specific characteristics of that hop? So in our aspect, we can buy upwards of 15,000 pounds of one variety of hop, and sometimes we don't get a choice of just one lot. It'll be like 4,000 of this, 3,000 of that. So if that's the case, we try to get the best that will blend together well, so there's not a noticeable change. But if it is something we have like 500 pounds of, then we'll just get the best player for a beer we already have in mind. I'm just okay. going to go from there. Um, do you get them blended together when you select them separately, or do you keep them separate? We keep them separate and then pay attention to lot lines when they come in. And we're trying to get um, hop companies to give us a heads up when that transition's happening, because I don't always remember in my head, and they don't do that. <laughs> This doesn't work. So, I mean, I, this, is a, this is one of those questions, this is what we call a leading question. How much of a difference do you think it makes, or do you think it makes a difference at all, uh, to make one of your beers with the Citra hops that you selected versus just buying them off the, hop, the spot market? In other words, how much of a disadvantage are smaller brewers at because they don't get to, do, they don't get to select their, their hops? They're not at a disadvantage at all. No, really? But, um, in my opinion, like when you're making 5,000 barrels or less, you are playing with what you have. So you have this hop, you smell it, you could use it, you could do the test that Adam does and put it into a beer. You know you're getting it. And same with malts. Maybe you don't get every malt variety. You play with your water, you play with everything else. And you just kind of utilize it and see what kind of beer you can make from it. And that's the beauty because you're putting out 10 barrels that you're selling in-house. And you could put 20 pounds of hops per barrel, which is ridiculous, but you could still Jump sell up. it in-house and make up for it. Um, whereas we have a house beer that's sold all year round, and we need 10,000 pounds of hops to make that beer throughout and the year. to maintain um, the consistency. I'll, I'll jump on that really quick. Yeah. Uh, we don't flagship anything, so we can get anything in any time and make it work in a beer, but it doesn't mean it's going to be satisfactory to everybody's taste or palates, right? So we have no flagships, therefore we have no profile that we have to stick to other than our brewing process. If our brewing process comes, ac comes across in every beer, how you expect it to be because you buy our beer because you expect it to be quality every time, then we did it right. So if we get a citra that's cat pissy one time or a citra that's white layer cake the next time, we can make that beer work as long as it's not something that you have expectations for. So if you come in only expecting to like our beer, <laughs> uh, then you're going to be all right. So that's the so advantage. As long, as long as you don't have a distributor uh, expecting you to deliver 5,000 barrels of a, an IPA that tastes exactly the same every single time. Yeah, and we're 75% self-distributed, and everybody expects just nothing but rotation from us. We can't make a Pilsner back-to-back -back at this point at our brewery. But that's a special case, I guess, but it's also becoming more the norm. So that's interesting. I mean, one thing that I... Adam and I had a conversation a while ago where he basically told me that he would be very interested to see the difference between a, one of his beers, one of your flagships, like Crikey, for instance, if you made it with your selected hops versus just buying some hops off the spot market and doing it to see how much of a difference. And personally, knowing him, I bet he would be able to taste the difference. Um, knowing me, I bet I couldn't. Anyone could. Yeah. Anyone could. Really? Anyone, anyone could. Well, um, that's intense. <laughs> selection. That, such certainty. <laughs> People like their brands and their flagships and their beer. I like my beer. Um, yeah. So I could get at that, though. So there is no two batches of a beer that tastes exactly the same. It's impossible. There's humans building it, and there's humans brewing it. And every time somebody might do it slightly different, or your numbers might not come out perfectly. We don't have perfect automation. So the hop selection part is great to keep it close, but will never be perfect. And if a person can decipher each batch to batch, 
Good on them. Sir Pellet's amazing. Yo, you know, uh, here's one of the things that this is just, kind of, I don't mean this, is, I mean this is a compliment to all the brewers in the room, is that uh, to beer drinkers, we don't notice the difference between one batch of beer versus another. Our, our perception is that they're all pretty much the same. But the fact that you guys care that much, at least those of you out there that are good brewers, care that much is why your beer is good. But um, whether, whether we can taste the differences or not, you guys care that much. You guys, either you really can taste the differences or you care that much, and that's what makes you guys. Well, I, I agree that, you know, you'll have differences that vary between batch to batch. It's undoubted. You know, um, but if you get to select those hops, you know the parameters of each hop that you get and what you're going to get within a certain range. I would not, I don't like taking the chance, even though some of the varietals I get, I don't get to select. I, most of them I do. But the, those are the ones that are the X factor to me. Because you may get some that are just like, oh, this is flame. It's amazing. You know, it's exactly what I want from this hop. And then you may just get one that's just straight up onion and just... Um, and, it, and it will completely change your beer. So that's why I, I try to get my hops within a certain range for core beers. So I can have a certain, uh, certain range of predictability for my customers. Um, the other ones I can play with, that's fine. But for my cores, I, I want to have you know, a little more selection, a little more uh, hands-on, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I just want to be able to, you know, predict what that hop's going to give me every time. Okay, so we got to move on so we can sit here and talk about talk about uh, hop selection. Can I just say okay, you got a sorry. little more. So, <laughs> so, selection is an opportunity, but it's also a risk. So you could select something that you, when you rub, it seems magnificent, but you get it in the brew house and it's trash. And I did that last year. I put my hand up. I, there was one hop that I went and selected, and it, it's a hop that you uh, can only rub from piles. It, it's, it doesn't get bailed. It gets pelletized straight away. And I smelled something that was amazing, like real, really where I was going, what, what, what I wanted from it. And then uh, it was literally, I got the call the day before. I drove over, selected, and came back. And, uh, and it wasn't what we wanted. And so we had to then get another four lots when we got the, 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 the hops in after they were pelletized and then re reselected off of that. So it's not, it's not as great as it sounds. You know? See, that, that's perfect, what he just said, because that goes to a follow-up question that I didn't have time to ask him. And that was, in terms of him working with experimental hops, how, how many times have you fallen completely on your face and totally failed? It happens, right? Um, so I have the fun part of doing what, two series now that are this or that series for us where it's new beer every time and that's where we throw all of our experimental hops in. And we are going for a certain flavor because that's what we got. We got, and all of a sudden we get white tea out of it. Like, I was not expecting that at all. Like, we're expecting peach, maybe a little bit of mango, and it throws you for a loop. So, let's talk about some killer hop bombs that you worked with, Mike. At uh, Fatheads, you that you worked with some killer hop bombs that won some pretty big awards and stuff. What can you tell us about the hop regiments? Um, talking about hopping regiments, how do you go about designing how you're going to regiment your hop usage in a beer? You fly yeah. by the seat of your pants. Me? Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> no, I it, honestly, you know, I I have a basic range I like to stay within, you know, but. It depends on the hops I'm getting, the hops I'm using, as to where I try to go with it. Um, being part of a, a pub, you know, I'm not making, I'm making 20 barrel batches. So I get to have that little more of a, of a let it rip kind of mentality. Um, and if it, it's great, great. I'll, I'll, you know, fine tune it and move on. If it's not where I want it to be, it's 20 barrels and it'll go fairly fast and then I can make my adjustments from there. Um, so I, I, like I said, I keep within a certain range as far as alphas and, uh, and just poundage, you know, because I have a small, I'm 10 barrels at a time, you know, 20 barrels into a fermenter. So there's not a whole lot I, I do that is going to be, you know, this is, you know, this is not what I wanted. It's, it's going to be within a certain range. So does anybody use like full on bittering 60 minute hops or is everything just 
hop bursting now? Oh no, eighty minutes. Okay. All right. I'm old school. I mean, just I, want, I, I want to make sure because so many of the IPAs I taste these days still, are well, anything but bitter. The program I came out with, you know, came from. Um, I'm I'm still true to. You know, I, I'm a West Coast. Uh, you know, I think Fatheads was kind of a had a um, had its kind of flavor profile, and I, I then when I got out here, I kind of did my own thing as well. And I'm way more I would kind of consider San Diego, um, super lean malt. Uh, yeah, bitter. You know, I, I want the, I want that. It, it, it finishes clean. It's not just bitter. It's just the way it, it finishes. So, uh, we make one hazy IPA, and it's my fourth best-selling IPA, and it's I'm proud of that. Uh, in its own way, I, I get it. You know, I'm not I'm not slamming the hazy thing. I'm just saying it's for my program and what I like to do. Yeah, I like to to have a good edge to it. Cool. Uh, next question I've got. We're talking about hops. But now, I'm going to ask you about grain, Patrick. I get to talk about malt in a hot right. panel, which is yes, like but, lovely. But I want you to talk about malt. You brought notes? You can't read my writing, by the way. There's no way. Well, you know what I'm going to ask you. What I'm going to ask him is about the considerations you put, because beer is not hops alone. No. Um, so what considerations go into, and an IPA is not just wheat and oats, um, so what goes into your... When <laughs> no, you pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> Done. <laughs> when you All de my notes. When you design a malt bill, when you design the grain bill for one of your IPAs that you want to be an outstanding, marvelous hop superstar... Oh, at least good, yeah. What, or at least good. Uh, what considerations do you take into in terms of your grain bill? Okay, so the notes are because I can't control myself very well. So, uh, you know, ta-da. So... Most of what I'm going to talk about has to do with observations off our own brewing profile, a match list, uh, myself and Aaron, and what we've uh, talked about for years now, uh, as far as like why things are happening, as far as hops are concerned. Uh, you know, base malt, uh, base malt impact. Uh, basically, you're going to be choosing like lean to rich base malt. So you want more lean on your product or a more uh, heavy rich character. Uh, I prefer to lean kind of more rich. I want the malt to have an impact, but it can't actually dominate the beer because you know we're paying a lot of money for hops. Right? Okay. Uh, I don't, we don't bitter with uh, Citra. We don't bitter with Galaxy. If you do, well, that's your choice. That's fine. I'm not mocking, but like, you know, impact is impact. And we do do 60 minute bittering for sure. Uh, most of it's in can form because cans are really nice. Uh, okay, so flake versus malted uh, materials. Uh, malted materials are going to give you uh, more impact versus flake materials. That's basically it as far as flavor is concerned. Malted rye, spicy. Flaked rye, not spicy. Uh, but viscous, it's going to be like uh, slimy in your mouth, but you're probably going to like that with a hop. Uh, something like malted uh, wheat. Sorry, I'll just hold on. Uh, malted, uh, malted oats versus like flaked oats. Uh, flaked oats, big blade of glucan. Uh, malted oats are just going to be kind of oaty, whatever that means. Uh, you know, uh, uh, malted wheat versus flaked wheat, you're going to get clarity issues. So, clarity issues on a hazy beer. Um, like, you're going to get, gr uh, off of malted wheat, you're going to get a bunch of gray tones and like weird like characters in your visuals because you drink with your eyes, right? Um, if it's uh, flaked wheat, it's going to be much more bright and yellow, uh, you know, because that's what we're looking for. Uh, yeah, specialty malts, leave them out of your hoppy beers unless you're making red, brown, copper, black IPAs. That's a different panel. Uh, <laughs> not to be a flagrant or anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can talk about maltodextrin, lactose, and sugar. Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, let's go there. Uh, maltodextrin, uh, lactose, and sugar. Lactose, if you dry your beer out, lactose works just fine. It actually does drink nicely. Uh, it doesn't just become a milkshake IPA, but it can actually add uh, stuff for hops to hang on to. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, maltodextrin, it's kind of the same thing. More stuff for hops to hang on to. I don't know of any protein powders that we can use in beer, but I'm sure somebody makes protein powders in the health food world that we might want to start playing with. GNC. Yes. So basically a palette of GNC muscle building material or something. <laughs> okay. Uh, this will be the more fun part right here because, you know, you're all here for fun. The uh, wellness category, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, dextrins, versus, uh, dextrins versus proteins and uh, how they operate with hops. 
this is kind of where it's all going towards as far as what I have to say. Uh, if you have no dextrins in your beer and low protein, your hops will not stay in your beer. Uh, and most of the time when we're making hoppy beer, we're fighting time and oxidation. Right? Okay. Um, hops versus good hops, we're basically still fighting time and oxidation. So if you can't make a good beer with quote-unquote hops, good luck with your brewery. Uh, we don't have contracts. We make 4,000 barrels last year. We're going to push that this year much higher. Uh, not because we want to, but because, you know, pull-through is fun. You know. Uh, so at this point, it's going to be one of those things where it's just like we can take whatever hops we can get and make beer with them. We don't flagship. Everything's a rotation. We will remake a beer every year. Like, oh, awful. If we made it twice this year. Wow. Never more. Uh, uh, so dextrins, uh, they bind with uh, hops uh, in a way that keeps them in suspension a little longer. They add perceived sweetness, so all those tropical fruity flavors that everybody's so fun on right now. It doesn't matter if it's a clear beer or a hazy beer, by the way. Uh, as far as like the dextrins are concerned, or protein and uh, hop bonding, hops bond with proteins, as we all know, it's called chill haze, uh, and hops bond with uh, dextrins, uh, which is a little less studied, but you know, there's some science out there somewhere. I'm sure somebody here probably has read the paper on it. Uh, it, yeah, exactly. And it keeps it in suspension just a little longer. It actually changes the dynamic of the hop. It goes from being something like hop tea and hop and water to hop and dextrins and uh, beer, you know, because it tastes good that way. Uh, when you use uh, protolytic enzy or, uh, uh, enzymes that are going to uh, reduce all of your uh, dextrins into sugars and they ferments it out into a brute, I'm not anti-brute. People do make decent ones out there. But when you get rid of dextrins in a brute IPA and you run a really, like, low-protein uh, uh, mash, you're going to find a lot of less hop character in there, and it's going to be more tea-like. That's basically it. So if you want to spend a lot of money on hops and have a very low hoppy beer, make a brute. Uh, so only, only a couple other things to say, because I just, you know, am me. Uh, uh, acid and mineral impact, it's huge. Uh, you, can, you can run, like, 200 IBUs into a beer. As long as your acidity and your final, like, uh, your boil is low, it, that's all that matters. You will never have an acidic, like, or very uh, bitter beer. So let's say you're running, like, a 5.3 to 5.4 pH uh, mash, as you should be, uh, uh, which is uh, optimal. Uh, then running over to your kettle uh, at a 5.2, and you're trying to knock out at, like, 5.1, maybe 4.9. Uh, you can uh, try to bitter that beer as far as you can as an average IPA. I'm not talking about 4%. I'm talking about 6 to 7, maybe 8. Uh, it's hard to add enough bittering to make a bitter beer. So hop away, all you want to do. Uh, you can knock down your temperature and your whirlpool all you want to. And to get more hop character, flavor, aroma, it ain't going to much uh, add bitter. Uh, unless, of course, you've knocked out all your dextrins and uh, protein. Uh, last thing I could ask, talk about is mash efficiency. There's a lot of mash efficiency kings out there. These are, this is a malt thing for real. Uh, if you're going for 90 to 95% efficiency, well, you're basically getting all your alcohol out of like a very small amount of malt. A very small amount of malt does not yield a very large amount of beer flavor. Because you're making beer, you should probably be shooting for beer flavor. Get it? That's all, that's all I got. All right. Wow, I picked the right guy to ask that question. That was awesome. So, okay. Be, be, this I, is all anecdotal, sorry. I'm, I'm going to try to limit you guys to some short comments on this next. This is a curveball for you guys. Yes, um, your, your beer is Tokyo, and there's a monster coming at you, and he looks like Godzilla, and he's called Enzymatic Hop Creep. What are you going to do to protect your beer against enzymatic hop creep? <laughs> Try and keep your answer short. <laughs> um, I let it sit in the tank and wait until it's done and figure out when it's actually done and then send it to your package. So instead of sending it out when it can still suffer from hop creep, you wait till it's done. There's like a hydrometer, it tells you all those things when it just really stops and it's about three or four days after you think it was done, it's done. Okay, so you're telling me there is no monster on the edge of town? The hop creep is an illusion? No, it's definitely there. Um, it's just if you package right so away. So it's process. You can, you can... It's process and actually it's, it's, uh, it's the hop varietals. 
there's definitely more, you get more enzymatic uh, reaction with definitely with some, with different hops. And is that something that's known? Uh, so you guys know I don't know, which... I, I don't know, anyone else noticed? I think Amarillo is one of the biggest, the biggest uh, culprits. Yeah. Um, Amarillo, Amarillo, and actually Amarillo's Simcoe, a creep. Uh, Amarillo just produces so much more enzymatic uh, reaction in, in secondary fermentation compared to another hop that I've used uh, out of all my trials. I've gotten it from Azaka and Whole Melon. Both of those, for some reason, will drop two points afterwards for no reason. Yeah, so, so oh. yeah, and so, yeah. Dry, dry hopping. Yeah, it's all dry hop. It's all dry hop. What we're talking about is the beer reaches terminal gravity, we dry hop, and then the creep is that it cre the gravity cre creeps down after the dry hop. Like, and it could be like half Plato or something. So it's, it's so kind of like cinnamon. an unwanted uh, secondary fermentation. It can happen in the keg or in the can or the bottle or whatever because of the hop character. Because there's enzymes in the hops that, in, apparently, in some hops more than others, that can that can uh, create ferment create the, fermentable sugars and the, the yeast that is suspended in the beer. Da, 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 hop creep. Yeah, we and a lot of brewers have seen anywhere from like half a degree Plato, which would be uh, I don't know, like uh, a specific gravity like one zero zero four uh, creep down to like one zero zero zero. Uh, up to like a one and a half degree Play-Doh. Like we've seen almost two in our cans. Uh, depending on yeast strain, you'll see diacetyl production, so it tastes like butter after about a month in can or less time. Uh, and this is after terminal gravity, everything's stable, you've dry hopped, it seems fine, you go into a can or a, or a bottle and all of a sudden you have over-carbed beer, that's a common thing, uh, over-attenuated, very thin, like less, like lifeless beer. These are, the, these are the main problems of hop creep, and it's mostly yeast strain dependent, and it's also hop dependent. Citra Mosaic's been doing it quite a bit also. And to me, this is, and also like Shellhammer and some people who have been studying this in OSU, uh, we'll talk about this in terms of the arms race to lower kilning your hops. In other words, all the hops are harvested from the field. They go through a kilning, a heating process to dry them down and make them stable. Then they're pelletized. Uh, a lot of this seems to be that like the lower temperature kilning process allows enzymes in the hops to stay active versus being what you might say neutralized or deactivated. The hotter the hop gets, the less active the enzymes they have. So they bring it into the beer and now you dry hop and then maybe a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, if there's a little bit of yeast residuals in the cans because we're not sterile filtering our beer. Anybody here? No. Study. No, I, you know, I, it's actual fermentation. We're uh, actually breaking down. Could you, could you rephrase this question for the, for the crowd? Yeah, well, I mean, there's nothing else to do but time, yeah. honestly. I mean, you're, you have to let that yeast re-clean up everything that, that it's just re-fermented. So it's basically a second fermentation. Yeah, you got to, again, you just get, you See, have to I, wait I knew until it the hop passes creep was gonna be I haven't had here. any issues, like, with package <laughs> later on. It's just longer time it, it takes in the fermenter to clean up. Yeah. I haven't had any other, any other issues on package. It's just, you know, unless the beer's just not finished out that. We can answer a few other questions really quick, but to your point, we've had issues in package, and it's mostly over carb because most of the yeast strains we use, and for some reason, we don't see a lot of diacetyl reproduction in our package, right? We do see re-fermentation, so our, our beers go from a pleasant drinking volume to a little more uh, carbonation. That's the usual problem in package that we've had, like in can or in bottles. <laughs> oh, boy. So, you know. This is going to get very know, clear I mean, really I, quick I think, here. Um, I think general so, knowledge is that you could you could either do something like you could do something to thank you something to yeah. I mean filtering your beer well, the reason why we're talking about this now compared yeah. to a hundred years ago we didn't need to talk about this because everybody filtered their beers the beers that we make now are are dry hopped almost Thanks. always especially IPAs uh, are almost always dry hopped and they're not filtered which is where the hop creep came from. It's, it's the extent of dry hop is one thing, and also the lower kilning temperatures. And the benefit of lower kilning temperatures is you get better aromatics out, the, out, out of the hops. The issue for us, we, we get a VDK issue. We get more diastole coming out. And so what we do is once we dry hop, we're, we're like keeping a really close eye at the gravity of that beer. If it changes just a little, then we know that there's some re-fermentation going on. And now, now we've actually got um, spectrophotometer and, and a lab. We, um, 
actually go to a um, specific BDK uh, results on it, and we wait to it before it gets below a certain certain amount, to, and, and it will hit multiple days of the same terminal gravity. I think it also has to do with uh, warmer dry hop temperatures. Now it's like, don't even crash your beer at all. Just let the yeast naturally go out of suspension. But half your yeast is still kind of, quarter of your yeast is still kind of in suspension. So you're just impacting it. You're pissing the yeast off because you threw a bunch of hops on top of it. They're not happy. They're spitting everything out, but they won't soak it back up right away. Whereas before you put in like a half pound or a pound of dry hopping, it's like, yeah, we can handle this kind of environment. It's cool. We'll take everything back in. It's not happening anymore. Some of, it, some of it's hop loading then, uh, as you're saying, which is like even more enzyme basically to the party to reduce all the dextrins, uh, make even more impact and trouble. Uh, I look at it in a way that's probably inappropriate. Uh, so, so if, if you're uh, in Germany and you're making bread, it's called bread, right? And if your bread doesn't last like 35 days, it's called bread. You should probably be eating it like in the next like four days max, right? So in this, in this country, in this state, like when we're making IPAs, I'm not making IPAs to last 90 days, 100 and, uh, 160 days, right? I'm making perishable beer. It should be perishable when it comes out of the tanks. But not four days. Yeah, but even then, uh, it shouldn't happen. If it's okay, I'll go backwards. If if your hop creep is like done in four days, keep it in your tank. If your hop creep happens over the next four weeks, what are you going to do? Because nobody's going to hold a dry hopped beer for four weeks before it's done creeping and then can it. So, you if you want quality. Uh, hey, this is a quality argument, right? We've done 21 yeah. Because the, the, beer's, the beer, uh, when you're done dry hopping it, it's crashed out and it's uh, carved, ready to be served, and you're drinking it off the tank yourself going, it's right where it should be. Uh, hold it for four more weeks and then can it. I don't know if that's like the best procedure. Uh, well, this is... It is the best procedure if you want a quality okay, product okay, you you got, got, that shelf stability. I, I want... I want this is, this is one of the reasons why we call it hop creep, is because the creep just works its way in, and here we go. I, need to I want to wrap this up, and I want to, let the, I want to give the audience a, a chance to ask you guys a couple of questions. Okay. Okay. Adam's got one more thing to say. I just want to say one thing. We've, our solution is to mash lower, because if we mash lower, then we're not keeping as, as much body in the beer for the hop creep to like eat out. And we don't, we're not totally sure what that is, but we're finding if we mash lower, you don't get as much hop creep, and then you end up at this, the same place that it would with hop creep, but you're not starting post-dry hop from, the, from a higher spot, if that makes sense. Are you using things that won't ferment out to keep a higher sugar content in your beer? Well, yeah, mash temper is one of those, and then like You guys are such geeks, and, and man. Stuff. This is awesome. Adding soda things like maltodextrin. All grain, all grain. All right, you guys, is anybody out there got a question for these guys regarding hops, hop usage? So I found one about hop creep. Have you noticed differences in different suppliers? I've had greater hop creep from indie hops. Do they have a lower kiln temperature than and anybody else I can think of? So the question is, do we notice um, higher hop creep from particular hop suppliers? And that might be related to kiln temperatures. I've only used three or four hops from Indy. Meridian, Chinook, Strata, and there was one other one, but I can't remember. And I have not actually had any hop creep from Indy. I think, well, it's a give and take. You know, your lower, your lower kiln temperature is going to give you better aromatics. It's just the way it is. So you're going to have to deal with more creep because of the enzymes that are left. So. You want more flavor, or you want to take a little more time? It's it's really kind of a you have to you have to choose. I'd rather have more flavor and take an extra four or five days, and that's just the way it is. Okay, any more questions? One more question from somebody over here. How cold? Cold edition hops. Like hot side. So, so doing no, are you talking only cold edition hops? No whirlpool, no nothing. So the, so the question was, what do we think about all cold side hops, no hot side hops? 
you don't work for us, but we've got a beer that's exactly that on tap. <laughs> so it's, it's called um, Crush Zero. It's a theoretical zero IBU. It's all cold, cold side hopping. So it's theoretically zero IBUs because there's nothing on the hot side and you shouldn't get any IBUs out of, out of that beer as a result. But um, the last batch we sent to the lab and it came out as a 32 IBUs, I think, you know, from... Because really, it, it just... Forget, forget my terminology here, that just crept out of the hops <laughs> and you added them on the cold side? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. A, a couple of interesting things, obviously, uh, the, the normal, so we use a crush beer, but um, like malt base, but all of the hops, instead of every, everything goes cold side, apart from putting some hot side. And if you, if you, if you try it, you'll see that it's, you can start seeing through it slightly. So you're not getting as much haze as you would with Hazelicious, which is kind of, or Crush, which is kind of inter interesting, even though it's the same hop rate. And it was all citrus, so like it's pretty high oil content. And um, yeah, the bitterness obviously isn't as high. And uh, it, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting little experiment that we, we did. Okay. One more question from anybody, or are hey, we real, done? Real quick, there's a paper on uh, pH rise and uh, alpha acid release. Look for it. One more question back here. Thoughts on no foil? Disband the DMS. We all know the DMS. Thoughts on no foil? You guys doing them? With IPAs? No. Negative. I'm I'm about to do a beer with Allegory Brewing out of McMinnville, and it will be a no boil hazy IPA. Uh, I'll let you know how it goes. Well, maybe you'll find out how it Are goes. Are there any other yeah. yeast strains slash bugs to eat up all that stuff? I'm gonna figure that out real quick. Yeah. <laughs> do you We're gonna find you out. <laughs> Are you gonna pasteurize, or you, is it basically a spontaneous? How are you supposed to get rid of the, all the DMS precursors? Oh boy, here we well, go. we're not boiling, so we'll make less of them. <laughs> and uh, no, it won't get rid of any of them. <laughs> uh, no boil, uh, sour beers, and DMS. There, uh, that's all I got. Yeah, it's yeah. The Algoza only has a 20-minute 20 20-minute 20 boil. We'll and probably so pasteurize, and that's about it. It that doesn't have any DMS, even though it's a 60% vitamin pills. So. Oh. I'm not even going to talk about the all-powder beer we're going to make with Allegory, so that's a secret. I'm not much for secrets, anything's open kimono, but like... Uh, it's time. We've passed our limit. I, I kind of had a feeling that this, this subject of hops was going to creep up on us. And I, and I should have known when I talked about Godzilla and the hop creep that that was just going to send us into a tailspin. But that was awesome, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our panelists for um, tackling the fun and divisive, uh, sometimes divisive, topic of hops. Um, after listening to that again, I really want to speak to Patrick and find out what happened with his no-boil IPA that uh, created quite a few discussion points. <laughs> and a few laughs. laughs. Yeah, and a few laughs. I haven't heard anything about it. Um, it's certainly not something I'm planning on doing anytime soon. But you know, he may have found a new, a new genre that we all need to be on. We sometimes forget in industrial society that we are dealing in in raw ingredients that are agricultural products, right? And um, hops are an agricultural product. And uh, we have to, if one of our beers, so let's say, just as an example, Crikey has a certain flavor profile, people come to expect it should taste like that. And I can't say, oh, well, this is the next season's hops, so it's going to taste different, you know? I, so what we do is we think about the flavor profile and then just... Um, any dry hops, just glacially, glacial changes, small changes, but to try and keep that hop profile consistent so somebody can rely on what crikey tastes like, whereas it may use a slightly different ingredient profile to get there over time. Uh, we are selecting, of course, but even with selections, I mean, we talked about it on the panel. It's not, it's not a binary thing. It's a lot of shades of gray, and what you think you're going to get may not actually turn out to be what you do get. There was also lots of discussions on that, that panel about um, the size of craft breweries and how batches are different one-on-one. -on -one. Every batch is different, you know. And I think that's kind of interesting because a number of the, the panelists have, have different maybe business models. But for me, I, going back to like Crikey, I think somebody picking up a Crikey today and a Crikey in two months' time or a Crikey in six months' time 
it should be crikey, right? It, it shouldn't be noticeably different. And that as brewers, from a production a production brewery methodology or, or just, just um, in terms of a mindset, is a very different thing to doing individual beers showcasing the difference in number of different hops. You know, very different uh, brewery models. But for us, we have some beers that we're going to showcase different hop varieties and different lots and years as part of that. Um, and others that I want to be able to give somebody a consistent, consistent experience with. So I wonder, Adam, with what you just said about wanting to have a beer that has consistency like this, is this something that any size brewery can do? Or is this something that's indicative of a brewery the size of Rubens Brews? We're not that big, but we do have um, the ability to select certain, certain hops. I think if you're far bigger than us, you can probably take far more of a scientific approach at it. I think for, for most breweries, when you get into new lot years, if you want to keep a consistent perception or a consistent beer profile, you, can, you really have to be focused on those transitional uh, times. Now, what is the new hop lot like compared to the old one? Even if you're getting a blend and you're not selecting, um, you can still do it. It's just you've got maybe less levers to play with. And whereas compared to us, like the bigger breweries have even more levers right, to play with. So, um, yeah, I think any, anybody can do it. It's just a question of extent and a question of how easy it is. <laughs> so as we're recording this, we're in the midst of the tail end of the 2019 hop harvest. And I know a lot of friends of ours are coming through town. We're actually doing a collaboration with uh, some friends that are visiting for their hop selection. So as you're going into the final stages of choosing the hops that we're going to be using for the next uh, year, what are some of the things that you're hoping to find this year that maybe you um, have missed out on in the past or you want to improve on this year? That's a, that's a broad question. So, so um, there's a number of different elements, right? So certain hop varieties that we use or, or rely on strongly, I, I'd like to keep consistency with prior profiles. So I'm, I think I mentioned in the, on the panel that what you rub for, i.e. what you just get the hop and smell it, doesn't transfer all the time into the beer in the same way. So we have, we have um, smelling notes, rubbing notes from prior harvests of going back a number of years, and we're comfortable now that we know how that hop should actually translate. So for our primary ones, that's what we, we do. And funny enough, in like two hours from now, that's what I'm going to be doing, actually, for on the main varieties. So uh, I better find those notes, right? But um, And then other varieties, so that's, that's you know, that's, that's one part, that's your, that's for our everyday favorite brews, right? The beers that we put in cans and that are consistent, we're trying to be consistent. But for the one-off beers, we really want to be experimental and try lots of different things. So I've spent some time going around some of the uh, the experimental hop fields um, earlier in the harvest and rubbing certain varieties and I've got a list of, of varieties that we actually want to actually want to get some hops of so we can actually do some tests and um, I'm hoping that we might be able to uh, find some great new hops that we can uh, enjoy and lean into in like some of our more one-off beers um, going forward. In addition to that, we have some experimental varieties that so so hops when they when they are first bred um, are just a number. It's a year, like an, and then it's a a parent number, and then which iteration is is taken. So it's like it might be 2015-014-001, something like that. And then if they are good and they get built up and, um, over multiple hills they're called like a hill is one one um, rhizome plant and then you might have more hills might go to 30 hills might go to an acre as they build up they'll be given a number it'll be like hbc 692 um so when i went out recently I, I had a look at some of the ones that haven't even got a number when most people only think of it as the number and then after that if it progresses it will actually be given a name it will graduate to a name right um so i'm hoping that we can uh, get some nice hops in the the early early side we're 
in a program where we um, are going to actually do some one-off beers with some of the numbered hops, and then we'll provide feedback to the hop breeding company on those hops and actually send some of the beers to them so they can actually try them and, and see, because they have the same issue as us, right? If we rub a, a rubber hop, it doesn't, uh, it might smell great, but it might not taste great in the beer. So they want to see that translation for the brewers as well. So this leads uh, perfectly into one of our recurring segments where we take a question from the audience. Um, Big Tuna wrote in on Instagram recently to ask, Adam, where do you get ideas for new beers? Oh, wow. Um, it could come from anything. So was at a Korean restaurant yesterday and it reminded me, well, I haven't ever brewed a rice lager. We need to brew a rice lager. Um, so that was one idea. Um, other things might be, you know, like I was talking about new hops. Well, let's try these new hop profiles. Uh, other ideas, some of the more crazy ideas, maybe crazy is too strong a word, more unusual ideas, um, might be where we're getting influence from something totally distinct. So um, like a, a candy might give me an idea for a flavor profile that might work in a beer. Like we talked about coffee. Well, the, if, a, if a coffee works well and has notes of black tea, peach, and lime, and if that is all integrated in a nice way, well, maybe, maybe something like that would, would work. Totally randomly, we had one beer once poured on an unclean line that it was one of our first ever handles. And this is like seven years ago, right? And uh, it was an IPA, one of our IPAs that was poured after a, after a pumpkin beer. And uh, pumpkin, the spices, because the lines are plastic, it just leaches into the plastic. And then the next beer tastes of pumpkin. It's kind of, which for me, being really happy that we got these, these new handles and it tastes, but it tasted of, of uh, curry. So a pumpkin spice with this particular IPA taste of the curry. And it made me think, actually, this could be a place for that. You know, so um, I think it's just having a level of consciousness all around and, and having ideas. Um, there's ideas everywhere, right? Um, we brewed what, 140 beers last year, and there was still a load that we didn't get to. So there's always, there's always ideas on the traditional, like the rice lager type side up to... Curry beer of the future. Yeah, yeah, the curry beer of the future, yeah. So if you'd like your question uh, posed to Adam the Brewmaster, uh, write to me at matt at rubensbrews.com and just mention that it's a question for Sight Glass. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us at your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Google Podcast. I also want to say thank you to Eric Johnson and Quiet Coyote Studio for the music to the show and production. And until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.